I did too. It's cool. We wrote a paper. Boom. Yeah. It's rock and roll, man. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Put the phone on silent. I picked up an iPhone. I don't know how to use it, but I can turn it off. So um, I guess it's eight o'clock. So uh, welcome back to well, no, yesterday was welcome back. So we're going to talk today about some biochemistry of amino acids and how these amino acids are converted and used into hormones. And we visit this a couple of times through the semester. We come back to it just to make sure that when you hear about these hormones, specifically things like catecholamines, things like uh, serotonin and the thyroid hormone, you have an idea of some basic uh, concepts, basic biochemistry of where these things came from. And I've been told by previous students that they've heard about the catecholamines and serotonin and thyroid hormone, yeah, yeah, so many times in pathology and in pharmacology that they've, they've referred back to me and said, this has really been so useful that we did it this way. That, and so it's been much appreciated. So even if it appears that it's a little bit or possibly redundant or possibly uh, a little too basic for you, I, I promise you it'll hold a lot of dividends uh, later. Right? So, uh, so we have a copyright and we have some objectives and some QR codes. And the idea is, is we're going to uh, remember some certain things about our, our amino acids. And so when we think about the word catecholamine, this comes from the organic chemistry for the catechol. And the catechol is, an, is a benzene ring, basically, that has two hydroxyl groups attached to it. And then so if it's a catecholamine, that means that it's a benzene ring with two hydroxyl groups attached to it and then with an amine functional group on it. And these are derived from the amino acid, uh, the two amino acids, phenylalanine and tyrosine because the tyrosine amino acid really is the same thing as phenylalanine, except that it has a hydroxyl group attached to it. Now, I'm curious just where we are today, because I know we just came off of a summer break, and we haven't thought about amino acids in so long. And I know that those of you who weren't a weightlifter like I used to be back in my college days, I mean, I love the amino acids, because if I took amino acids, I knew that I was going to get big. I never got big, but I thought I would. <laughs> I wanted to get thick, right, like Arnold. But I just never did. But I still studied my amino acids because of that, and I remember now that phenylalanine, what, is, what does phenylalanine look like? You don't have to draw the structure, of course, but it certainly pays dividends to have a, a, a sort of a visual idea of what it looks like. And how many of us, if we close our eyes, could just kind of see what that molecule would look like? About half of us, right? So I'm telling you that when you look at this molecule, you think about that word phenylalanine, what does the word phenyl mean to you? It's got a ring with a conjugated bonds inside of it, you know, that thing, right? And so that's because the phenylalanine basically is the amino acid that has the benzene ring as part of its side chain. And tyrosine is the same thing as phenylalanine, it's just that it's hydroxylated. It has an alcohol functional group, OH. And then L-DOPA, of course, is a double hydroxylated phenylalanine or dihydroxyphenylalanine. And then dopamine, epinephrine, and, or norepinephrine and epinephrine then are derived from L-DOPA after a decarboxylation event. And so, so we, in other words, like tyrosine is, is, is formed from the degradation of phenylalanine, or you can consume it in your diet. So in a sense, phenylalanine would be an essential amino acid, and tyrosine, of course, is non-essential as long as phenylalanine is provided in the diet. Right? Okay, so, so I just said that. 
So uh, dopamine has, has lots of roles, right? One is that it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a primarily a neurotransmitter in the brain. And of course, we know of disorders such as Parkinson's disease, a tremor um, neurological degeneration disorder um, called Parkinson's disease. And that's a due, uh, caused by a lack of production of dopamine in particular cells in the brain. It also has some, some roles in the body, but it's not as, as, um, not as important at this point. Then we also have uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and these are part of the flight or flight response hormones. So this is what happens when you get stressed out, these, and your blood pressure goes up, you breathe faster, your pupils dilate. All of these things are, are getting ready for this uh, sympathetic response. And of course, this is released from the adrenal glands. And the norepinephrine also has a role as a, um, as a neurotransmitter. So there's lots of different receptors for these kinds of hormones, right? So, and these are the, the so-called uh, G-protein-coupled receptors. So remember, the G-protein-coupled receptor is a seven-pass transmembrane receptor that uh, is then coupled to a heterotrimeric G-protein. And of course, then that we have some signaling uh, responses from that. And there's either the, the canonical PKA pathway, that's protein kinase A, <coughs> responding to cyclic AMP, or the PKC pathway, uh, that's activated by calcium and diacylglycerol. I know all this depends on the G-protein-coupled receptor. So recall that's what the, the heptahelical G-protein-coupled receptor looks like. It's got seven transmembrane domains, and then you have your, your heterotrimeric G-protein. This is showing it in the off state because it's mounted GDP. When it becomes activated by hormone binding to the receptor, then the GDP comes off and GTP is grabbed, and it turns itself on, and then we have the signal transduction events happening. So that's all kind of putting this back into context for you. So we think about phenylalanine as this, the, the, the founder or the beginning of this pathway. Phenylalanine can be hydroxylated. Right? Hydroxylation reaction means that uh, uh, OH group, hydroxyl group, is tacked on to the, uh, a portion of that molecule. And this is an important reaction. You have to think about it. It's not like just putting an OH group onto the molecule. It's happening on the ring. And because it's happening on the, the, the aromatic ring, it needs a specific kind of cofactor called tetrahydrobiopterin, abbreviated BH4, tetrahydrobiopterin. That's the cofactor that nature uses to do ring hydroxylation reactions. So, so phenylalanine can be converted to, to tyrosine by the enzyme phenylalanine hydroxylase. You form tyrosine. So in really what they call in an, an analogous reaction, right? It's really the same reaction. It's just now that tyrosine becomes hydroxylated again. Right? The reaction is basically exactly the same, but now it's catalyzed by tyrosine hydroxylase, and we form L-DOPA. It's a key point here is that L-DOPA is an amino acid. So if you call it DOPA, that is an amino acid. It's got a carboxyl group and an amino group on the alpha carbon, it is an amino acid. So how many amino acids are there? So it's like a trick question. How many amino acids are there? It depends upon what you mean by how many amino acids. There's a freaking infinite number of amino acids. Sorry for saying, talking like Dr. Evil there. Right? But really, there's an infinite amount because you can have an amine group and a carboxyl group on an alpha carbon, and you can have any variety of side chains after that. Right? How many? amino acids are there found in the body? And the best answer for that is, I don't know, right? Because we think there's around 50 or 60 different amino acids that are found in the body. Then you say, how many amino acids are commonly found in protein? And you should know this answer, and it's 20. There's 20 standard or common amino acids found in the body. And of course, some of those amino acids are dietary essential. Some of them are non-dietary essential, and some have other kinds of classifications, which we're going to get to as we go through this course. OK, so now we have L-DOPA, an amino acid. So L-DOPA can be decarboxylated using the cofactor 
pyridoxal phosphate or vitamin B6. And this, of course, what's coming off of this reaction, if we call it a decarboxylation reaction, carbon dioxide is coming off, and we form dopamine. And that's how we form the first of our catecholamine hormones. So dopamine can be hydroxylated again. This time, it's the hydroxylation is the cofactor is being used as, as vitamin C, ascorbic acid. And this is because this hydroxylation is not happening on the ring. It's somewhere else on the molecule. And we form norepinephrine. And norepinephrine can be methylated to form epinephrine. And the cofactor for this, anytime you have a methyl group transfer in nature, or just about any time in nature when there's a, a methyl group transfer, how many of us can remember what the methyl group is? That's CH3, CH3. So the methyl group is really hard to move around in nature. And so if it's going to happen, Sam, your old friend Sam, S-adenosylmethionine, is going to be the one to donate that methyl group. And that happens through the enzyme phenylethanolamine and methyltransferase. And then we form epinephrine. Right? So you don't have to know the structures, of course, but sometimes it pays to go through this kind of quick to see how it's working. So at the very top of the picture, we're starting from tyrosine. We tack another hydroxyl group on. That's by uh, tyrosine hydroxylase. We form L-DOPA. L-DOPA then in the dashed line there, we're showing the decarboxylation event happening as carbon dioxide comes off. And then we have dopamine beta hydroxylase uh, catalyzing the hydroxylation on the, the, on the, 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 whatever it is, this, not on the ring, right? <laughs> and then we form a, a methylation event from phenylethanolamine and methyltransferase with, uh, uh, with SAM being the methyl donor. It got cut off by the QR code. Okay. So next module, right? So this story goes on. This is important because there's a lot of really cool biochemistry, a lot of cool nutrition aspects about this molecule of SAM, S-adenosylmethionine. And we're going to talk about that for several hours in the next module. So let's not have any questions about this now. Okay. So uh, think about this now for a second, the, the, uh, this catecholamine in the brain, this, this, this idea of dopamine in the brain. So here you have some patient. He's in his late 40s, maybe uh, late 50s in that age. And he notices something's wrong when he's out walking. Kind of, He's got a droopy uh, stance. He's, his arm swing is in as well. He's got a shuffling gait. And of course, this is the so-called uh, shake, shaking palsy that was first described by James Parkinson back in the, the late 1800s in London. Right? And he, of course, uh, ca characterized this by looking at people in the street. And he said, why do some people walk this way? And as a physician, he started thinking about it. And he spent more and more time walking out in London. Of course, that's a lot of fun. If you ever walked in London, it is fun. But then he started looking at people and how they walk. And then he, of course, wrote a very important paper describing this disorder. And that's why it's called Parkinson's disease. So, so this, this patient here, uh, he gets specific kinds of medications, and specifically, he takes L-DOPA, and then a particular kind of medication to help stabilize L-DOPA in the peripheral circulation so that it can cross into the blood-brain barrier to increase dopamine production in the brain. And so, uh, the, of course, uh, the medications, they help somewhat, but then we call this on-time and off-time, meaning you're on when the medications are working and then off when the Parkinson's symptoms come back. And, of course, over time, though, at the beginning of the Parkinson's disease, the patient responds very well to this treatment, but then it begins to get harder and harder to keep yourself um, um, on. Okay, so... Uh, so it's a neurodegenerative disorder, and basically there's just a loss of uh, dopamine production in the basal ganglia, so it's, and, and 
you, you, it's just caused by a particular destruction of, of, of cells. And so there's a, lot, there's a lot of really cool cell biology, neurobiology about this, and I think it can, it can wait. But the whole idea is, is that you have less production of dopamine, and then you have this movement disorder that's associated with, this, um, with that loss of those neurons. And so in a sense, you think about Parkinson's disease, I'm hoping that at this point you're linking it with uh, reduced formation of this catecholamine um, uh, dopamine. So there's other conditions. So that's a just, it's an example there of deficient production of dopamine in a particular cell in the brain, right? Well, there's other conditions that are resulting from increased production of dopamine. And so t in order to, to not, do excuse me, increased production of catecholamine hormones, not particularly uh, dopamine. So when you're thinking about that, then you have to think, well, how can we diagnose that? And so to do that, there are particular uh, uh, medical lab assays which can, can do that. And this, when we're thinking about these catecholamines, uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine, they can be degraded by two pathways. And one of those pathways is the catechol O-methyl transferase enzyme system. That's the, so what do you think the methyl transfer, what do you think the methyl donor group is? SAM, it's gotta be SAM, right? So SAM is a methyl donor, is used to, to, to methylate one of these uh, molecules, and then it can be degraded. Well, it can also be degraded by another system called the monoamine oxidase. And I think this pathway is over complex, and let's just focus on the, oh, it's right there. And we'll just look at the, the, the actual metabolites that can be measured. And so basically both pathways work, both pathways then can, um, metabolize epinephrine and norepinephrine to vanilla mendelic acid. And the key point here is, is that this is being produced at such little uh, quantities in the, in the body that it really has to, urine has to be collected for 24 hours in order to get enough of the metabolite to have uh, uh, a reliable assay of that metabolite. So dopamine can also be degraded by these same two pathways. And again, you only really should be focusing on the metabolite that's, that's assayed in the laboratory, and that's the homovanillic acid, or HVA. So homovanillic acid is the degradation product of dopamine, and vanillomandelic acid is the degradation product of epinephrine and norepinephrine. And both of them use the same two pathways, catecholamine O-methyltransferase and monoamine oxidase. <sighs> right. Okay. So now we have that, and we can say, well, there's particular kinds of cancers that can lead to the overproduction of epinephrine or norepinephrine. And this is called a pheochromocytoma. The pheochromocytoma is a tumor on the adrenal gland. And so one of the things about a, a tumor is, is that you have uncontrolled cell growth, uncontrolled cellular proliferation, right? So you have this uncontrolled cellular proliferation. And because you have more cells that are there in that tumor that were, are supposed to be there, Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes or oftentimes, those cells start doing more of what they normally are programmed to do. So if you have cells that are programmed or, or normally have been differentiated to produce and secrete epinephrine and norepinephrine, now you have a tumor in those cells, now they might begin overproducing that particular tumor because they, or that particular, those particular hormones because that's what they've been doing all along. And so the particular kinds of symptoms of the pheochromocytoma are associated with elevated levels of these catecholamine stress hormones, particularly anxiety, panic attacks, sweating, uh, um, heart palpitations, headaches, these, these kind of things, right? And so, so hypertension, I just said that. Okay, so, so to, 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 to test for this, 
what needs to be done is, is when the patient is having these kind of symptoms, then at that point, with those during that period of episodic symptoms, then you collect urine for 24 hours and you test for the, the production of this uh, uh, vanilla mendelic acid. And that'll tell you whether or not, if you have high levels of that, that is indicative of this pheochromocytoma. Okay. So, all of these uh, catecholamine molecules are degraded by this monoamine oxidase, MAO, and the catecholamine O-methyltransferase. So norepinephrine and epinephrine are degraded to form vanilla mendelic acid, 24-hour test, and dopamine is degraded to homophenolic acid. So you have to keep those two separate. So we change gears now, and instead of talking about uh, the catecholamines, we'll talk about serotonin and melatonin. And this is a, I love this example because, again, I like to say, again, we don't have to memorize the structures of our amino acids. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's not useful for us. In, and, but however, if you were to look at the table of the 20 common amino acids and their structures, how many of you think that you could reliably pick out this structure and say that it was tryptophan? And I'm hoping that the majority of the class would be able to do that because that doesn't mean you have to memorize it in order to pick it out. I'm saying if you were given the 20 structures of the 20 common amino acids found in proteins, would you be able to pick that one out? Yeah, I think you should be, right? But you, and, and, I'm, and I'm saying that because you don't have to memorize the structure in order to pick it out, right? You have to show yourself that, oh, I know this has to be tryptophan because that's the only one that's got two rings, and then you've got it. Do you see the difference? This is the one that, of course, means that the men get to sleep after Thanksgiving turkey dinner in, in the United States because we get sleepy from eating too much turkey, and then we get to watch football and crash, and then somebody else gets to wash the dishes. Right? <laughs> right? And so that's tryptophan. I guess that, you know, if you, you were a weightlifter in college like I was, you'd know this because you would have studied the amino acids with great um, assiduousness. Okay, so anyway, uh, that being said, the idea of serotonin, serotonin, of course, is derived from tryptophan through a, very, a set of very, very simple reactions, and then melatonin can be derived from serotonin. So here we have uh, another example of a couple of uh, hormones or neurotransmitters, I'm saying or, either or because they, they can function both ways, that... <clears throat> that we have an amino acid that is a dietary essential amino acid that can be very, very easily, very efficiently converted into a signaling molecule. And these molecules work typically through the G-protein uh, coupled receptors, and they can be found both with functions in, the, in neurons and in, in the body. Okay. So, so this serotonin, of course, you know, we think about serotonin as a neurotransmitter, but by far the majority of the amount of serotonin that's produced in the body is actually produced in the gut, and that's supposed to regulate gastric motility. So, uh, the, uh, so if we start with, 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 with tryptophan, the first reaction is it creates this 5-hydroxytryptophan, 5-hydroxytryptophan. And this reaction, five, uh, conversion of tryptophan to 5-hydroxytryptophan, is in a sense the analogous reaction to what happens to phenylalanine when it's converted to tyrosine and tyrosine when it's converted to dopamine. And why is this? And the reason is, is that the hydroxylation reaction is occurring on the ring. Right? So if it's a ring hydroxylation, you need to have, have tetrahydrobiopterin as the cofactor. Notice I'm not calling tetrahydrobiopterin a vitamin. Right? I haven't called it a vitamin, have I? Right? You know why? What, does the, what is the definition of a vitamin? means you have to you have to have it 
right? You can't make it yourself. Vitamin is something that has to be supplemented in the diet. Hence, you can have, have, have vitamin deficiencies. But typically, we do not get a tetrahydrobiopterin deficiency because we can synthesize it ourselves normally. Okay. So, so we have uh, the 5-hydroxytryptophan, and 5-hydroxytryptophan is then uh, decarboxylated to form 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is now the amine derivative of, of the, the, the modified uh, tryptophan molecule. Right? So now we have serotonin. So it's a very, very simple reaction to do, and we can convert it directly from, from, from uh, derivatives of, of tryptophan. Then there's a, a couple of other reactions, and I, there's, there's a, it's a little bit more, you know, several things happening, and then we form melatonin, which is another signaling molecule very important in the body. And the idea with melatonin then, or, or, or serotonin, when it's degraded, it's degraded through the monoamine oxidase uh, system, and we form this molecule called 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid. So 5-H-I-A-A, and that is excreted into the urine. So why should we go into talking all about this? Well, of course, there is another kind of a cancer called the carcinoid syndrome, carcinoid syndrome or carcinoid cancer that is associated with an overproduction of, of serotonin. And so here's an example where this uh, uh, woman, Mrs. L, she experiences diarrhea, flushing symptoms, and she thought this was something else at first. She goes to some doctors and specialists, and they, nobody really kind of understands what's going on because they, they, it comes and goes. So they're saying, ah, you know, it's all in your head. Right, right. So, but then she gets really sick, and then she gets to the hospital and finds out the next day that she's got this carcinoid cancer. And so what's the, the idea here is, is that we have this, this carcinoid syndrome. It's a tumor of the particular cells in the gastrointestinal tract in the gut that are responsible for the uptake of these amine precursors and then for decarboxylation. And I think you've heard about this in the histology lectures, this, these APUD cells, amine per precursor uptake decarboxylation cells. They are the cells in the gut, and their job is to take up molecules like tryptophan, decarboxylate them, and form signaling molecules, hormones, for regulating the uh, gut motility. So you have this cutaneous flushing, sometimes equipment by sweating, uh, oftentimes uh, uh, very, very severe diarrhea, bronchospasms. And all of this is due to this increased production of, of serotonin or 5-hydroxytryptamine. So sometimes serotonin is abbreviated 5-HT because that's 5-hydroxytryptamine uh, molecule. So this overproduction of serotonin in this, these APUD cells, in this carcinoid tumor, now we're just flooding the blood, flooding the, 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 the digestive tract with this serotonin. And of course, this is going to be degraded to 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid, 5-HIAA, and that's going to be filtered out of the kidney, and that can be collected in the urine over a 24-hour test, and then this molecule can be measured for diagnosis of this condition. Right? So now we have three kinds of degradation molecules we've talked about, right? We've talked about homovanillic acid, we've talked about vanilla mendelic acid, and now 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid. You've got to get it straight which ones are which. The vanilla mendelic acid is from norepinephrine, epinephrine, the homovanillic acid is the dopamine, and the 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid is from the serotonin. So serotonin is also degraded by the same kinds of pathways that will degrade the catecholamine. So it makes sense to think about all these guys together, right? And so there, this is important because there are drugs that can inhibit 
this kind of these 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 degradations, and of course that means that serotonin levels will be uh, the degradation of them will be slowed down, and so you can have these particular uh, kinds of drugs called the MAOI class of drugs. That's the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and they can be used uh, sometimes to increase the. Uh, the serotonin in the body or in the CNS. And of course, the, the way that these would work is, is that they just reduce the degradation of that. Now, I think that at this point, it's important for you not to confuse the so-called SSRI type of drugs with the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. And the whole idea with the SSRI is that those are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And all they're going to do is they're going to say, we're going to ask the neurons not to reuptake serotonin after the molecules use as a signaling molecule, so the serotonin will stay in the synapse longer and give more of a signal. Right, so just two ways to modulate the levels of serotonin in the brain, and it's going to change the way people think. <sighs> okay. So melatonin, I'm not going to say much about melatonin, and just the whole idea is, is that, that in the brain, melatonin is very important for uh, for regulation of our circadian rhythms, right? And so the melatonin is, uh, is secreted uh, f from the pineal gland, and it, the, 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 the secretion of this, this compound is maximized during darkness, right? And so it's suppressed when you're in the daylight. And, of course, this is once this begins to be produced, then you get sleepy. And I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but all summer, I was up till midnight almost every day, sleep until 7 or 8. Come to Grenada, first day, 8.45, I'm asleep, <laughs> up at 5, right? And I think, why is that? And I know why, because when the sun sets here, man, it's like, who turned out the lights? And I don't know about you, but my house, I cannot get that house bright for some reason. No matter how many lights I get, it just doesn't seem bright, and I just get sleepy. And I call it the Caribbean sleep syndrome. That's me. That's just for me. That's a private syndrome that I have, right? So don't ever call me past 8. 30, so I don't want to pick up my phone, right? A lot of people get that way. I don't know about you. Okay? I haven't had coffee since March, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> That's tea. That's tea. <laughs> so, okay, so, so we have this thing, and, if, and so, of course, in some places, especially like in, I've got friends in uh, northern uh, Denmark and in Sweden and Norway, northern Norway, and they have this thing called, sometimes they call it seasonal effectiveness disorder, or SAD. And of course, this is because they don't have appropriate uh, uh, suppression of melatonin synthesis. They just have overproduction of melatonin, and they don't feel quite right. right? So it's interrupted this, uh, this uh, circadian rhythm. And of course, they've got these kind of lights, SAD light therapy, where you can have these bright lights and you feel better. But I think uh, maybe they should just come to the Caribbean for a little while. Maybe that's why they do. Right? That's why they go to Sandals. So tetrahydrobiopterin, I'd like to make sure we come back to this for a second. This is a coenzyme, and it's required for many of these amino acid hydroxylation reactions. We talked about three of them. Right? We formed uh, tyrosine from phenylalanine, we formed L-DOPA from tyrosine, and we formed 5-hydroxytryptophan uh, from tryptophan. Right? And so Think about that later by yourself. Why I've already said it. They're the same reaction, of course, because they're all aromatic. Okay? So if there was a tetrahydrobiopterin deficiency, and of course this is not a dietary thing, this would be a genetic disorder because you would have a mutation, say, in the genes which code for the enzymes which are involved in the pathway for the synthesis of this 
tetrahydrobiopterin. So tetrahydrobiopterin is synthesized from a, a nucleotide, and then you form um, the, uh, the inactive version of the cofactor BH2, and BH2 has to be reduced to BH4, and then that's the active form of the molecule. So if you don't have enough of this thing being produced because you have a deficiency in the enzyme that makes it, or if you have the inability to put it into its reduced form, right, you know what I call it reduced and oxidized, right? Because if you have more hydrogens on the molecule, BH4, that's the reduced version, and now it has the power to power the reaction to, to get the ring hydroxylation to occur. So if you can't produce that molecule, that means you can't degrade phenylalanine to tyrosine. You can't turn tyrosine into L-DOPA, and you can't form serotonin from tryptophan. Right? So you're going to have all these problems from this. And so this, of course, is going to cause all kinds of terrible problems. You're going to have one problem. You're going to have elevated levels of phenylalanine. Another problem is you're not going to have production of L-DOPA. You're not going to have production of tyrosine. That becomes an essential amino acid. And you're not going to be able to have serotonin. So all of these things together cause incredibly, incredibly bad uh, things. And of course, how can you manage this kind of thing? How could this be managed by a physician? Well, you could imagine we could give these neurotransmitter precursors into the diet, provide L-DOPA, provide 5-hydroxytryptophan, so that all the thing that has to happen is the dopamine has to, has to be formed or the, the, trip, the serotonin has to be formed. But think about it. Why is this a difficult thing to do? Just in general terms, this is really not easy to do because we have this thing called the blood-brain barrier, which is supposed to keep the brain separate from the rest of the body in terms of circulation for immunoprotection. So it becomes a very difficult thing. And of course, you'd have to have dietary phenylalanine restriction because you can't degrade that molecule. So you have all of these incredible problems. And we're going to talk about this more in the next modules. We're going to come back to this again. So let's, let's think of this question here. So how many of you over the summer like, missed your clicker and was dreaming about using the clicker again? Did anybody? I, had... I was thinking about the clicker a lot over the summer. I was missing them. went out fishing with the clicker, and I was pushing the button. He said, come on, fish, come on. They weren't responding. Yeah. Right, so I'm going to turn this in 10 seconds. Is that okay? 9, 8, And of course, this person has overproduction of catecholamine hormones like uh, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and tachycardia. So of course, it's vanillomendelic acid. So dihydroxyphenylalanine. What is dihydroxyphenylalanine? That is L-DOPA, and that is an amino acid, right? Because that's not going to be the degradation product of the, the, the catecholamine. 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid is the degradation product of serotonin. Tetrahydrobiopterin is the cofactor, the BH4 cofactor, which is used for the ring hydroxylation. And histamine is the, uh, we are not talking about that today, histamine is the uh, uh, 
hormone or neurotransmitter derives from histidine. So typically on our exams, we have five choices, right? But I think it's, this is just in a class, so it's okay to have more. And I think that one of the things about this, as you go through this entire semester, maybe some of these we haven't really focused on yet. I think we haven't done the oxidative species yet. So, so glutathione, GSH is glutathione. That's clearly not the right answer here, right? And uh, so... So one of the things that you should think about as you're going through the remainder of this semester, you know, towards May, is that you should know which one of these are the, which kind of vitamins. So TPP, what am I referring to here is thiamine pyrophosphate, which is vitamin B1. Uh, PLP, pyridoxal phosphate, that's vitamin B6, and this kind of thing. So, of course, uh, it's phenylethanolamine and transferase, and methyltransferase, and that's uh, S-denosylmethionine is the, the methyl donor. So when you have a methyl group transfer, methyl group transfer, then that is usually, I think almost invariably, S-adenosomethionine is the donor for that. So I'm just going cloud cuckoo with the clickers here. Loving them. So last February, I was, went to a conference about Parkinson's disease, and they were talking about the history of finding out which kind of drugs were supposed to be given in order to treat a patient that had, had Parkinson's. And of course, if you gave a patient massive doses of L-DOPA, which in a sense is what they had to do, of course, what's that going to mean? What's going to happen to that L-DOPA in circulation in the body? What's it going to be converted into? dopamine, and then it's going to be converted into epinephrine and norepinephrine. And so you have these massively high levels of epinephrine and norepinephrine going in this person's body. And of course, what did that make them do? Well, very sick. They were vomiting and they were dying of heart attacks and this kind of thing. Right? So that wasn't good, clearly. So what they learned was that they could give lower doses of this L-DOPA if it was in combination with an inhibitor of the dopa decarboxylase enzyme. Right? Because where do you find dopa decarboxylase enzyme? Well, you're going to find it all over the place in the body. And, so, and you're also going to find it in the particular cells in the brain, which need to produce dopamine from L-DOPA. So what they would do is they would give the dopa decarboxylase inhibitor in combination with the L-DOPA that would suppress the conversion of dopamine in the body in circulation, allow the L-DOPA to cross into the brain, where it can then be used by the brain to form dopamine. A really difficult 
concept to get. And of course, they also realized they had to slowly ramp up the dosage over time. And it was really by luck, in a sense, that several people tried to do these kind of clinical trials, and eventually they realized how to, how to do the dosing, because that was really the, the biggest um, challenge in figuring out that this was going to be a good drug. It almost didn't happen. It almost got squashed. I said, oh, no, it doesn't work. Some people persisted. They said, I'm going to try it again. Make more patients sick. And then eventually they figured it out. OK, very interesting history. All right, so dopa decarboxylase is the active uh, or is, is the, the enzyme which converts L-DOPA into the dopamine, the active neurotransmitter. So in a sense, the person that takes L-DOPA, right, what I was trying to tell you a second ago, the person that's taking L-DOPA for Parkinson's disease, they have to take the L-DOPA, but they also have to take a DOPA decarboxylase inhibitor to suppress formation of L-DOPA in circulation of the body, allow that L-DOPA to cross into the brain where it can then be used as a substrate for dopamine formation. Pretty cool, right? Does that make sense? Crystal clear? Huh? And the question was, does the inhibitor cross the blood-brain barrier? And I guess it doesn't. Yeah, so, okay. <laughs> right. Okay. So. Yeah. Sorry about that. This summer, I was doing batting practice with my son. I was the pitcher. I threw 2,000 pitches from home plate. Boom! I only beamed him three times. He said, cut it out, Daddy. What the heck? All right, 10 seconds, okay? Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. All right, so uh, this is my trick question, of course. And we should have exactly what I'm hoping because there's three reactions, duh. And of course, on an exam, there'd only be one question, right? There'd only be one. So of course, dopa, uh, 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 VH4, tetrahydrobiopterin, is uh, very important for, uh, a cofactor for three important reactions for these hydroxylation of rings. There's some other reactions it does. I can never remember them, so, but they're, they can be found if you wanted to hunt for them. Right? So we change gears, and we're going to talk about another kind of signaling molecule, which is derived from uh, tyrosine, and that is the thyroid hormone. So, so the thyroid hormone is, uh, is, a, is a kind of an amino acid modification that's actually formed on the protein. It's formed on a protein called thyroglobulin. So it's a globular protein that's found in the thyroid, so thyroglobulin protein. And so this is a really cool example of a post-translational modification. And that specific post-translational modification is called iodination. So an iodine, iodine atoms are attached onto uh, tyrosine, tyrosine amino acids. And then after that attachment's done, then we have two, of, uh, two tyrosines that have been iodinated get conjugated together. Conjugation means they get attached together, and then they get the, the protein is clipped apart, and then the thyroid hormone is released into the blood, where it can then <coughs> act 
on the distant cells in the body to regulate the basal metabolic rate. And if you recall from gene regulation and from the ideas of uh, signal transduction, this happens because the, iod the, 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 the thyroid hormone, when it gets into the cell, it's going to combine with a thyroid hormone receptor, which is then going to go into the nucleus to regulate gene expression. And those gene expressions then are going to form genes that are going to help regulate basal metabolic rate. So that's kind of like the big picture. So you think about the steps that are involved in the formation of thyroid hormone. Well, first we have to trap iodine in the thyroid cell. Then we have to iodinate the thyroglobulin protein. And this is going to be specific tyrosine amino acids on the thyroglobulin protein. And then we couple the iodinated tyrosines together. We couple the side chains together. So now they're, they're found in tandem. And then we release the thyroid hormone. And then it, the thyroid hormone is going to travel around in the body. And then in some places, the inactive T4 version of the thyroid hormone is going to be uh, deiodinated to the, the active T3 form. And then, of course, then it's, yeah, you can, it'll function as that signaling molecule. So if here's like a cross-section of what the thyroid gland looks like, very, very simple uh, thing. You have the the thyroid follicular cells in a circle, and then in the center of those is this thing called the colloid. And the, the, the thyroid follicular cells are exposed to the uh, uh, capillary cells, so they're exposed to blood flow, and they, of course, is where, that is, of course, is where we get an uptake of iodine. And so this kind of cartoon here is showing how that happens. So you have a sodium uh, iodine symport. So you have a sodium iodide symport and you're thinking about that, well, how do, you how do you think about this in terms of what kind of transport mechanism this is? And the way I read this is that this is a secondary active transport. Secondary active transport. Remember the difference between primary active transport and secondary active transport. Primary active transport is happening at the direct expense of ATP. And the great example of that is the sodium-potassium ATPase, which is kicking out three sodiums, pulling in two sodiums, establishing a sodium gradient, and maintaining the osmotic stability of the cell and maintaining the voltage membrane potential on all cells. So then we can capture some of those, that sodium gradient, and we capture, we say, well, some sodium can come in into this uh, thyroid uh, follicular cell as long as it drags in an iodine with it. So you have, so this blue dot, the blue dot here is the, is the sodium-potassium ATPase, primary active transport, and the purple dot, or the, the lavender dot, is the sodium iodide symport, secondary active transport. Then the iodine has to then be shuttled into the colloid, and that happens on another transporter, and we get now some of this uh, uh, iodine into the colloid. And then we have uh, iodination reactions happen, and this is happening to specific tyrosine amino acid side chains. Again, this is a, a, an example of a post-translational uh, modification. So the enzyme that does this fixing of this iodine onto tyrosine is done by an enzyme called thioperoxidase, TPO. And this has two important functions. One of them is, is it does the iodination reaction itself, right? So you can form either, and this, this is kind of, I don't know how this is regulated, but it can either put on one or it can put on two, right? So you either have monoiodination or diiodination. So you either put one or two on. And then the next thing is, is that the thioperoxidase is going to act, or yeah, thioperoxidase acts as the peroxidase enzyme, and it forms a free radical, which is going to then allow these two tyrosines to couple together, and it's going to happen spontaneously after the radicals are formed, as, and then 
and then you end up with, with a linkage. There's the linkage where it's going to be. And you now have your, this would be a T4 molecule because it's got four iodines. If it had three, it would be called T3. So now you have it as, as a coupled um, uh, thyroid hormone. But this is now on the protein. So the cartoon, this thyroglobulin cartoon is showing the protein from the amino terminus to the carboxy terminus, right? So that's, there's like thousands of amino acids in there, right? There's lots of them. So the next thing that has to happen is, is that thing's then clipped out of the protein and it's released into the blood. And this kind of overall picture is showing how this happens. Here you have iodide and amino acids coming into the, the follicular cell. You have synthesis of proteins and whatnot. The, the iodide goes into then the, the, the colloid where you have the iodination happening. You have the, the coupling happening. And then you have degradation of that thyroglobulin uh, protein, and then it's, it's, it's sent into lysosomes in, back into the follicular cell, where it's then released back into the blood, either as T3 or T4, as exocytosis. Right? So thinking about this in terms of this, you know, really, in a sense, a very simple way of just having this cycle of iodine in and T4, T3 out. So in some tissues, some tissues actually are able to convert the inactive T form to the active uh, T3 form. And that would be the 5-iodinase enzyme at doing that activation. So, so I kind of said this a minute ago. Really, the whole idea here is, is that the thyroid hormone is working through gene expression. You're working through gene expression. Okay? So finishing this up is thinking about it in terms of what we, we spoke about now and where we're going to be going with this when we pick up more biochemistry in a few weeks from now. So tyrosine, of course, there's, it can be catabolized. So if we think about the catabolism of tyrosine, well, that means it's going to produce some substrates that can be used for burning for energy. It can, be used some sub, it can produce other substrates that might be useful for gluconeogenesis, de novo synthesis of glucose. Right, so we can burn it up. We can convert it into other things. We can use it to make proteins. We talked about that in the first block an FTM last semester. Then we also have tyrosine. We showed how it can be used for the formation of the catecholamines, dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine. We talked about, we didn't talk about it today. It can also be used for skin pigmentation, melanin. Right? So some people are darker than other people, and that's because we have skin pigmentation. We have, have melanin. So, of course, a deficiency of that would lead to albinism. And we talked about the thyroid hormone. And there's lots of other things that we could put in there, just but we, let's keep it a little bit simple. Lots of specific things for you to think about if you care to, and then we can finish now, if that's okay. So. Thank you.